Welcome to Fight the Burnout, uh, another episode where we're going to take and dive into the mental wellness and how to prevent and overcome burnout. Uh, as I always say in every single one of these episodes, we're going to give you a lot of information today. You're going to hear a lot from uh, from our guest uh, who did, has done a long career, and uh, I got the pl- privilege to meet him when I was in Phoenix, and uh, I was like, he's got to be on the show. So you're going to get a lot of information today, but I want you to just take down and just note one or two things to take action on. You know, we we are in an information world at the moment uh, with Google, with YouTube, with wherever you're watching or listening to this. You know, there's tons of information out there. But the problem isn't that we don't have the information. So we're not taking action on it and actually implementing it and making a habit into our lives. So take one thing away, go do it for 90 days, lock it in, and then come back and do it and grab another tool. Uh, so without further ado, we have Ray today. Uh, he is going to, as always, introduce himself, but he's done over 30 years of law enforcement, I can see. He was chief of police for uh, Indian Reservation, uh, just in Southern Phoenix. And he's got some really funny stories, and I know this because he's already told me some of them. Uh, I'll give it a little hint. Uh, it has to do with beans and rice, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but uh, without further ado, Ray, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and and you know where you policed and just a little bit of backstory on yourself. Okay. Um, as you said, my name is uh, Reynolds Neho. They call me Ray for short. And it's easier because nobody remembers the full name. As such, I was born essentially on the Indian Reservation, San Diego County, California. Grew up on the res, uh, public school, the whole thing. And uh, in the course of my growing up, uh, I ended up in the military. Uh, and I think that was the first insight into a job function where I wanted to uh, in, insert myself as a as a military policeman. And it wasn't because I thought about it growing up, because I can tell you growing up on the res, it doesn't often foster the idea that you want to follow the rules. Okay. And I was one of those guys that didn't follow the rules. But as I got older, you kind of see that they're there for a reason. And I kind of got the curiosity about what it was to be a cop. This was my first instinct to try. And I did. I ended up uh, in the army, I'm, you know, full volunteer. And as an MP, um, I was sent overseas to Korea. And that's kind of the funny thing, too. And people ask me, so, oh, where did you serve? And I said, Korea. And they look at you going, oh, you can't be that old. And I said, I'm not. I was there later, not during the war. But, it, you know, it just catches up with you. And as an MP, I think it's where I learned having gone through their academy and then on the street duties, uh, I think I first ran into what your topic was called and as a result of burnout and uh, the strugglings of the, the emotional frustrations that you would face and even in the course of the military. I returned from them in the army and I, I had a job, I took a job with a city department in California, but I was, I can be honest with you and say, I probably wasn't prepared for the duties of a street patrolman that quick. I was carrying some baggage from the military, the things I'd gone through. And again, I not, well, I was not in combat. Um, I don't know. The Army has a designator. They called ours hostile fire. I don't know the difference. I mean, does it mean the bullets curve something? I don't know. You've got a running chance. I don't know. But that was the sector we were in. But I brought back those some of the emotional baggage when I came back as a civilian. And for a short time, I tried my hand as a city police officer in California, our city of Alcohol. Can I say that? Can I give the cities and such? Yeah, yeah, you okay can give cities. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Well, for my, like I said, to be to be honest, I mean, uh, the frustrations of the job uh, tied on me to the point, I think, where I, that's where I was experienced what you call the burnout, the frustrations, the emotional uh, 
lost the inability to succeed at, a, at your given career choice. And it wasn't so much you and the bad guy, as I can say to your audience, I think every officer understands it's you and the bad guy, that's a given. But it's when you and the public lock horns or the citizenry that you're supposed to police lock horns, or even, I won't say poor supervision, but supervision that some officers might call questionable, if, you know, as we all have in many departments and we see throughout the world, that any officer is gonna have an opinion against their sergeant, their supervisor, et cetera. Having going through those things, questioning your street judgment or questioning the very things they told you to do. And then based on their observation, evaluation of the result, you were almost right, which I never could understand. And because you were almost right, you needed a squaring up or a talking to or a counseling as it was made official. So does it take away from you wanting to do the job? It, yeah, it did. And I ended up leaving, I left that department and I, I, for me, I got away from it and became of all things, a firefighter, wildland firefighter, because I grew up on the res and that was one of the big summer jobs. But this was like a for real thing. And I was glad I did because I got away from law enforcement. And that was one of the recuperative periods I can say. So when I realized, is this a career field I wanted to look at from the military to the civilian return to a completely different set of parameters, if you will, uh, to ultimately coming to Phoenix as a police officer. And that was my choice. And I said, I think I was emotionally ready for it at that point. And uh, I signed on as a patrolman. Uh, and as any cop in the city can tell you, there's many things you're going to see, good, bad, or indifferent. You're going to go through the dynamics of it. And from that point, I retired after 21 years. And I went on to become a tribal officer. And for like you said, you don't know anything about Indian reservations. Well, in America, there's a, a different jurisdictional status. And tribal officers patrol Indian reservations, the native nations. Uh, I think in Canada, they call them indigenous nations or uh, first nations, something like that. I'm not sure if you have anything like that in Australia or New Zealand or anything. But as such, they're a, they're a political entity that's overseen by the federal government, but they do have certain sovereignty issues. And one of them in, in so many states is law enforcement, public safety. And in Arizona, they had that structure and I became a tribal policeman. And as a tribal policeman, um, I learned very quickly the jurisdictional question we're always going to be hitting you in the face. Um, just as an example to you, if you were when you were a police officer, if you had a bad guy who did a who did a criminal offense, you chased him down, got the cuffs on him, you're a hero, put him back in the car. Well, on the Indian reservation, you have a bad guy who did something. First thing you got to figure out is he Indian. Number two was a victim Indian. Number three was a crime federal, tribal, or state. Well, if he's non-Indian and he committed a tribal crime, you can't arrest him. If he's non-Indian committed a federal crime, maybe you can arrest him, but you might not be able to prosecute him. But if he's native, you can escort him to the closest jail nearby. And this became frustrating for the public because as the joke was, Indians would go to jail while non-Indians would go home. And as a tribal police officer, you had to understand this was the status of, that I used to define as the question of jurisdiction. And I, I described it as who did what to whom where, because if you can decide who did what and where, then you can determine how to act against who for what they did against where, or what they did against whom where. And if you can get that out, you're in good shape, <laughs> okay? But that's how it worked. And I, I, went, I actually, you might say I aspired in that from, uh, I went as a patrolman and a sergeant and I ended up as a commander 
I was asked to take on a position as a commander of another reservation and help build a police department and a tribal reservation. And this dealt with guns, drugs, uh, you name it, violent crimes. And I built up the unit. And from there, I was assigned as the chief of that agency in, in Arizona. And that's where I learned how to be an administrator. Or should I say, how to say no. I think that was the going line for most administrators. Young cops go, hey, chief, can we do this? And the first thing out of the chief's mouth is, uh, no. So I learned how to do that. But again, it was always the administrative support that I had. And I think to the rank and file, I did pretty good as an officer, as a chief for the time that I was there. And ultimately, um, as time, as my years went on as the chief there, I was approached by uh, a director in state gaming and asked to take on a position of uh, in, uh, criminal intelligence for the gaming division, of state of Arizona department of gaming. I took that position and uh, ended up back on the reservation more times than I thought, because in Arizona, the state gaming agency also helps enforce uh, criminal gambling laws on the reservation. So I ended up spending a lot more time on the res. But it was, it was a good gig across the board. And as politics of the wind come, when positions fold, you go on to another department, and I did. And ultimately left as uh, a physical security lieutenant for another state department, uh, and formerly retiring back in 2018. So all told, about 35, 36 active years as a peace officer in the state of Arizona. And there oh, I am. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of um, experience there. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure that, you know, you learn a whole lot throughout the, throughout the time. What right. I'd love to know, kind of, you know, you talked about the bit of the burnout in the military mm -hmm. and then bringing that to law enforcement when you went to California. What mm -hmm. exactly was that? What did you experience directly? Can you, do you, can you remember exactly what it was? Oh, yeah. And... yeah. The, when you're in the academy, and I think I think young officers probably see this from the opti most optimistic standpoint. When you go into that academy or school or training for the first time, your head's basically a sieve. You know, your 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 whole focus is to absorb everything that they're throwing at you. And when you get into there, uh, most academy classes are all positive. You're going to make an impact on the community. You're going to make a difference. You're the purpose that everybody sees. When you come in, you stabilize the chaos. It's almost like you wore a cape and a big S mm -hmm. on your chest. But, I mean, you kind of have that. And then when you go out on your first couple of incidents, that cape is tattered, and that S is laying somewhere in the gutter, and you're standing there going, what the hell am I doing here? And Again, for the bad guys on the street, where I was assigned in the division, we were divisional MPs, which means we were essentially military, full military police, where we actually policed the garrison there. I mean, we had military duties, but our primary issue was law enforcement. So I did a lot of the patrol duties. I made a lot of arrests. I mean, and then these are both military in status and both criminal in status because both ran together. But the frustration came when the it seemed like the politics of, and I, I won't speak bad about the army because I did learn, but the politics of the army in the day were to minimize minority impact on crime. That's the best way I could put it. Now I'm a native, I'm native, I'm, you know, I'm Indian. I, I don't care what politically you want to say. I'm a card carrying, red blooded, all American member in good standing Indian. I've got the card to prove it. So being Indian, I was one of the unsolved or unknown minorities. And in my division, and I'm not, I'm not going to sound racial, but we were predominantly black. 
we had black soldiers predominantly, and we had you know Hispanic, which were Latino, etc. We had a few women, but not very many. Most this was mostly as an infantry division. So where we were located, we didn't have a lot of female. We had predominantly male, and then we had you're not your basic like I say white soldiers or whatever. But we had across the board a casserole of ethnic minorities and races, etc. But it did seem that right off the bat, the political winds did not want to upset the issue of uh, race relations in the military at that time. At this time, Vietnam was falling. Okay, so America was in a very ugly turmoil in 74, 75 at that time. When Vietnam fell, I mean, there was a lot of political heat. You had your, uh, your uh, what they call civil rights movements were going big and heavy at the time. So we were seeing a lot of the collateral damage from that. And I mean, yeah, there were, were there issues and arguments that a lot of the minorities could have brought forth? Yeah, of course. Were there officers that maybe went too far, MPs and just got badge heavy? Yeah, there were, but those were individuals. It wasn't the, it wasn't the organization. It wasn't the company. It wasn't the squad. It wasn't us at large, but because we wore all the trappings of MP, we were thrown into the bucket and being thrown in the bucket, we, ended up being looked upon, devalued, cataloged, and finally uh, subjugated by many in command to keep the race relations allegedly where politically they were safe. So frustratingly, this became a real issue for me because as, an, as a minority, it was like, okay, I'm the unsung minority. Not too many people knew that. But again, I'm going up against these people and I keep seeing officers being disciplined for things that they didn't do. And I saw what really bothered me was the uh, guilt by innuendo. A complaint would come through and I understand you got to investigate them. That's the integrity issue. I don't mind that. But when you condemn off the complaint and convict off the innuendo, like, I'm like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And I saw many of my friends and my cohorts, black and white, but as MPs across the board, just become so frustrated to say to hell with this wait for their time to rotate out. I'm gonna get out of here. I'm going someplace where I'll be appreciated. Couldn't wait to transfer out on their on rotation time. And I can give you a case in point. Maybe this will help dramatize a little bit. I was working a security section one day and I had two black GIs, two minority GIs come through. And of course they were supposed to check with me as part of security issue to show me their identification, et cetera. Well, they got into the position, I ain't have to show you nothing, which was the confrontation attitude. I was the honky swine that ever gonna, that was gonna confront their day. And as luck would have it, I ended up jacking them both up. I basically just you know, took them both into custody, walked them over to my sergeant at the, at the uh, police station, and we called their company and that was the end of it. I mean, normally it was, a, it was just a soldier being disorderly, but the companies would handle those. And that's how I wrote it up. Well, it wasn't, until it wasn't even a month, maybe three weeks later, I get a call to go and uh, report to what they call the civil affairs office. Now, this was the office where many young officers learned it's kind of like an internal affairs. There's a complaint issue, so now there's an integrity issue. And, uh, and because these soldiers were black and I wasn't, um, it was now a racial issue. That was the innuendo, that was the accusation. So I went in there knowing full well what to expect. I was an E4, every, every MP par, bar none. And I say this and I could put a dollar bet down on it. Every officer that went before that board and investigation lost a strike or they got 30 days company, company, not company punishment, but company, how uh, they call it uh, 
reevaluation. They allowed you 30 days to reevaluate yourself and then put yourself online again and go out and do a good job. But in that time, you lost one rank. Well, if you were an E3, you dropped E2. I was an E4. So everybody expected, said, well, Chief, it's been nice knowing you, man. You know, I have to start calling you private after this. I'm like, yeah, great. So when I go up there to do the thing, uh, I'm sitting outside and I see these two guys, these two, these two GIs, and they go in and they testify, just like in a formal hearing. And uh, as they walk out, I'm like, okay, here's a, uh, now it's my turn. All right. So I walk in. I don't know the gist of the charge on the fact that allegedly I jacked them up or I, I confronted them because they were black, completely racial innuendo. So in the course of the issue, um, I remember the, not the prosecutor, but it was, a, he was a captain, a young captain. And, um, you know, very, he was very articulate. And I remember him coming at me with the idea of, how long had I been a policeman? How, how many arrests like this have I dealt with? The, the kind of thing in the background. But then he hits me with the then the board. It, a picture of the board is a major, uh, a captain, two lieutenants, and a sergeant. They're all sitting there. And these are command officers. And I remember the captain flat on my face asked me, he said, uh, he said Specialist Neho, because you approached these two GIs because they were black. Is that correct? I said, no. I called him over to check the identification as to the security section that I was working. And then he goes, well, he goes, I just like to ask you, he said, how many uh, black people have you ever had interaction with? And I said, well, since the army, or he goes, well, growing up in your, in your life, in your neighborhood, wherever you grew up. And I said, well, um, I said, I had more interaction with minority, other minorities when I came in the army. I said, where I grew up, I didn't have any interaction with black folks or families of any kind. And he said, so obviously you grew up in an all white neighborhood. I go, uh, no, because where I grew up, there were no white people either. <laughs> so at that point, I think it's the, I think it was a command officer, the major sitting in there going, are you trying to be funny? Like, no, sir. He said, he asked me, I said, that's the truth. He goes, well, where did you grow up? And I said, on a reservation. And, and he said, a military reservation. And I go, uh, no, sir. I said, an Indian reservation. And when I said that, you could have heard a pin drop. It's like the Pope himself walked through the door. The angels were singing in the back and there was a humming and a glow in the room, but everybody was stone silent. Why? For the very reason I just explained. The military's view of public relations was a black and white scenario, for lack of a better term. I was the other dark meat. So there was no real focus as to how do you deal with an Indian who talked to another minority? I mean, a minority through American history was hunted by that minority in some cases. So how do, you know, how can you call this guy racist when his, you know, if you look at the, the history of it. So needless to say, not missing a chance to focus on my, I think you called it a plight at that time. The major asked me, and, I, and then to his success, he was being very sincere. He said, you know, Specialist Nail, tell us, what is it like to be on Indian reservation? So that was my opening, my opening door. And I fired a broadside across the bat because not to say that I was a smart ass, but I thought quick enough to try to lay it on thicker and heavier as I went. You know, the Indian plight, the trail of tears, none of which my people were involved in. And I, you know, I laid out, you know, the degradation of the Native American, the relocation, all the trauma, 
you know, it was, it was so sad, you know, because of the loss of the buffalo. And my people had never seen a buffalo except, you know, normally on the backside of a nickel. But the point was, nobody else knew that. And I used it to my advantage. And I, you know, maybe that's a bad thing to say. I'm sorry, but I did it. And because at the time, I was frustrated with, a, with an organization that straddled itself in such a limited focus that it, to the nth degree, it negated the good of a bunch of people. And that frustration manifested itself in drinking, in fighting, in complete uh, detachment from the guys who swore the oath that they were going to carry through. So that, that was my first, I would just say, attempt at dealing with burnout and frustration that I went through. But I carried that, I could say, a chip on my shoulder when I came back to the States as a civilian. Mm. How did, um, going to, because I know you brought it, you know, to that first department in California, and then mm-hmm. you went, wait a second, I need out of this. What was it that got mm-hmm. you out? That was like not, you know, what was the turning point where you're like, now nah, I'm fed up with this okay. policing side of things. I'm out of here. Well, I think if I think if I'm to be honest, I'm sure some officers may, if they're to be honest, they're going to say this too. When you preoccupy yourself about your personal situation while on the job, and you split your focus between the actual street and what's going on in your head, you're walking around like a potential time bomb. I think you're you're not really, how would you say, engaged. You're not picking up the cues. You're not doing as well as you should your performance is going to be affected and i was in a training status so everything i was looking at was being reviewed but at the same time i was always preoccupied like what do i really want to go through this do i really want to because i was seeing the similarities that i brought back from the military like the frustrations and the and the and the uh unclear goals purposes and direction you know countermanded orders from one sergeant to another that didn't seem to make a lot of sense at the time, at least to where I would be critical of it, even now in my own, because now I'm predisposed to thinking about that versus what I'm falling into. And what made it for me was we got a call of a guy who hadn't been seen for a while in the trailer. And uh, the neighbors were, were kind of concerned because he was missing. And uh, my partner, while my FTO training, my field training officer, myself, we got to the scene. Um, we got the statements. They said he'd been, you know, kind of absent for three or four days. He'd been despondent, but this was completely out of cue. And I asked, they asked if, uh, you know, we asked the normal, I said, does he have any guns? Has he threatened to hurt himself? They said, well, yeah, he's got a rifle, but he, he doesn't really threaten anyone he keeps to himself. But this is really unusual for him. So I go to the door of his, and it's a single wide trailer, just to give you uh, an idea. The entryway is on the upper front area on the one side, and there's an exit door on the rear side on the other option of the single wide. So that when you go into these things, the whole length of the trailer is like one walkway from say the living room on one end all the way to the bedroom at the end. Okay, well, my FTO said, okay, Ray, you stand by the door. Okay, I'm gonna go around the back. I'm gonna knock on the door, open up and check and see because we thought maybe he'd be in the, in the bedroom or he was hurt. We were going to check welfare. So I'm standing there thinking, I didn't hear my FTO say, stay here. I'll be honest with you. I did not hear it. And he said, go ahead. You know, he said, go ahead. Instead of saying, go ahead, I thought he meant go in. So what he did is he walks around the backside and he goes to knock on the door. And I open up the front and and I step up and you have to step up into these things. You know, there's like a couple of steps and there's a floor. Well, as I stepped up, 
just as I stepped up, I heard the rifle blast go off. Now, you know, if you hear the shot, it isn't you. <laughs> okay. I heard the blast go off. I immediately spun with my gun drawn because I, I, it was coming from down the alley. The guy was sitting there on his back against the wall, staring at me like, well, in a blank stare. And he had the rifle down on his lap. And I'm yelling, police, drop the gun, drop the gun, that kind of thing. My FTO slows the door open. He's yelling at him, drop the gun, drop the gun. And the guy falls forward. He blew it. He put the gun in his mouth, blew the back of his skull off, left it in the wall. So now that guy is down. I'm standing there shaking. I didn't realize how, how it impacted it was. But I did realize something immediately after. But for the grace of God, I'm still here. He decided to take his life. I'm walking around, with, as my FTO said, with my head up my ass, that could have been me. And he didn't have to reinforce it because I was living that moment. And that was pretty much a decider for me. Like, I can't continue this way. I'm going to get myself or somebody hurt. And it was the advice of another sergeant as I came back to the station and to turn in my resignation. Because I had decided it's time to do something beyond this career. Even though I thought law enforcement was still an exciting situation I wanted to be a part of. And he said to me, he said, Ray, he goes, you got the makings of a good cop. You got the instincts of a good street cop. He said, the problem is you just don't want to be here right now. Whatever it is you're dealing with, you need to step away and eliminate this completely from your whole vision and focus of a future. Do something completely. He says, do whatever it is you want to do, but don't do anything with law enforcement. He goes, and I'll give it, and I'm, he goes, when I'm telling you this, I'm telling you six months to a year, give it that. And if at the end of that time that you give yourself, if you still find yourself thinking about it, then you're ready to consciously decide whether or not this is a career. And I did. And I, that's how I became a firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service for a couple of seasons. So I know you went into, you then went into firefighting. What did you do during that time? Because I know firefighting, I've got friends that are in Cal Fire and and and, and that, and you know, it, it's it's a highly stressful job in a different way. Uh, oh God! And what did you do during that time that brought you that made you you know get back to yourself, refine yourself oh, as such, okay. um, to yeah. then go, hey, wait a second, no, I am ready, I do want to, and I'm ready to go into law enforcement again, and then obviously do the the really long successful career that you had after firefighting. Well, as, as I was assigned in the U.S. Forest Service on one of the uh, southern forests in, in uh, Riverside County, and uh, it, was, I, it was a good crew of guys. I mean, it really was. It's kind of like a little minor sorority or a bunch of fraternity, you know, call of, of guys that never made it to college, but we could drink beer with the best of them, one of the, those kind of groups. And, of course, we enjoyed the idea of just working as a crew. So there was a team environment like a small family environment that you could share and uh, when it came to the actual aspects of doing the job well, one of the things we I had was a station captain uh, red this guy was probably uh, well he was known throughout the ranger district as one of the hard noses when it came to physical training and it, they said if you can survive reds calisthenics you can survive a fire season so, and he would put us through it every day. So if you had some kind of thought about wondering why you were there, he would, he would knock it out of you. And we did lose a couple of guys going, I don't need this, the money ain't worth it. But for those of us that stayed, it was like we now had a sense of accomplishment. 
we were working with a man who was who was just a icon as far as the force force service went and fire suppression in that area i mean he was he was the man that you went to he was the people that they they got the go-to guy and on being on fire scenes with him um the excitement the danger yeah it was there i mean we got overrun a couple of times with moving fronts and as your friend from cal fire could probably tell you california is probably one of the craziest wild fire uh environments that you can involve yourself in. A lot of people die in, in that state. And that region is one of the most, for U.S. Forest Service is one of the most dangerous regions in their network. So, but that's the element, the environment that you're in. But it was through that time that we also went, not just for fires, we also went to uh, traffic accidents. And that's where I found another calling where you get in there as a medic, you know, even as an EMT or first responder, and you're trying to actually save lives. And that's where my first taste of application under fire of multiple injuries from car accidents. Sometimes they were uh, car accidents with fire and explosion and burns. And sometimes they were trauma of impact and you know sustained uh, exposure, that kind of thing. We had it from all variations from minor to major to fatal, but you had a sense of purpose. I think that's where I regained that sense of purpose. And it was towards my second season that I used to see the sheriff's cars go by and I'm thinking, I used to be there. I know what he's doing. He ain't all that. <laughs> you know, kind of but it started doing exactly what that sergeant told me. I started thinking, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe I can give it another chance. Maybe there's something more about it. But while I still concentrated on the career at hand, when that season ended, uh, in 78, 79, that's when I came out to Arizona. And uh, I hired on with the Phoenix Police Department. I fully, I actually had a second thought about maybe I'll go with Phoenix Fire. But no, they weren't hiring. So I walked across the hall. And I said, yeah, I'm going to try this. And it was, a, it was a decision along those lines. But I can tell you, it was a different feeling because of, like I was taking it on for the first time with a little bit of not naivete. I could say maybe a little bit of experience, but I was definitely taking it on for the first time. Emotion. And that's where what I began. Do you think, what do you think changed while you're in those two seasons on fire that was like... I can let the stuff from the military go. I can let the the pressures, the stresses of all of that. And I can go into this with a new, fresh kind of outlook and as a new as a new kind of person. What do you think it was during that season that actually shifted and changed, changed that the most? I would think, well, I could say it's probably a couple of things. One of the things that I had to come to grips with is that I left, I left a lot of my friends behind. The military's idea at the time was when you got the time, the points to rotate, you rotated, okay? You didn't go, like today, I think they go as a unit and they rotate out as a unit. So you don't leave anyone behind. That was the biggest question I think I really came to grips with. I didn't realize it till much later because a couple of guys that I worked with, one was a former Marine, another one was former Navy. And we were all talking about that. You know, it's like, yeah, leaving, you had overseas assignment, you pulled overseas duty and now you left them behind. You always wondered what they're doing right now or what are they going through? Because it, when in the reality of it, the one day you were there with them, you know, nine to five, going through everything you're going through, the next day you're sitting in a replacement depot, leaving, and they're still there. So there was no time to evaluate. There was no time to process the transition. And I had, that was one of the things I had to put down. So there, I did a bit of a ceremony that my people do, just kind of a cleansing thing. And uh, I accepted that. And I can say that that was probably for me the emotional uh, release on that aspect. 
when it came to um, uh, working with the law enforcement, that became more of the gradual interest being reestablished over time. Because remember I said we had a lot of traffic accidents. Well, we worked hand in hand with the sheriff's office, the highway patrol in California at those accident scenes. So it was kind of easy for me because I had had some police training to help set up some of the scene for measurement, et cetera. So I kind of knew what the officers were going to be doing, reconstructing the accident. And to that, for me, became kind of like a hands-on rehabilitative situation because it was like, uh, okay, I can be a part of it, but I don't, I'm not responsible for this report. So when he writes it, I can walk away. So there was that detachment. But over time, I was thinking, you know, I, I used to be pretty good at that. You know, I, I know what he's doing. And as things would come up, that became more and more the question of like, well, I think we're ready. Let's, are we really ready? And I really didn't, I really didn't feel a part of it until I was actually in the academy, listening to a training sergeant yell at me like I was in boot camp again or basic training. And I'm thinking, this is where I belong. Okay, I've, I've done it now. This is exactly where I belong because now I'm feeling reassured that I made the right decision because he's calling us all idiots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember those days. Um, you had mentioned a thing which, which, which stood out for me because I'm, a, I'm quite passionate about it. You said you had started to find that purpose again. You know, as, as mm -hmm. fire, you're like watching the sheriff's guys helping out hands on. And you're like, you could feel that sense of purpose again and mm -hmm. being drawn towards law enforcement with your purpose. What was that purpose? To become a part of something I had decided much many, many years before that I thought I wanted to be a part of. I think in my initial decision after I went into the Army, became an MP, saw the actual hands-on, the way it, way it went down, I wasn't prepared for that. I thought I knew what was, was going to transpire, but the actual involvement was harsh because, I mean, we had some we had some pretty ugly situations. And remember I said I worked traffic, so I know that was you know, kind of what they were doing. Well, in that division, in that traffic unit, my traffic accidents, and there's two that come to mind. One was a pickup truck that hit a tank mine. And uh, there was three guys in it, and that was they listed it as an accident. That was one of the frustrations I had, but my job was to diagram that scene and investigate it as an accident. Then there was the guy, he was a Korean national, he fell asleep on the road, which was not uncommon in those days in Korea because in the wintertime it was freezing. And, you know, asphalt is warmer. So to keep from freezing, they would actually lie in the road and stay warm and not freeze. Well, a convoy was coming south, complete with armor and a, a heavy-duty tank. I think it was an M, I want to say an M48, M60, rolled over the top of him and did like a three-quarter turn over his body. And I hate to say it, like spread him out on the highway for several yards. So I had, to, I had that accident. It was an accident. And I had to go back and recover what was left of him in the tracks, the treads in the street. And you're on that kind of thing. Like I said, I don't think I was ready for that. Be honest with you. I was not, I was put in a situation because of, you know, circumstances the way they were in the military. I mean, they said, okay, your train, go, your train, go, you, you got to do it. Okay. There was no breaking in period. The breaking in period was okay. Scoop them up. There you go. That kind of thing. And uh, by the time that I realized that there was something about it that I didn't lose in my transition and burnout and frustration, that when I saw the officers again as a firefighter, watching them at a distance, I thought, yeah, that's where I really like to be. And it was an instill, instilling like my initial, I was, my initial decision to go into law enforcement was correct. 
And that's where I, that's where I wanted to be. And that's what pushed me to uh, hire on in Phoenix and become a patrolman. So I know you did 21 uh, years in, in Phoenix PD. It went all the way up yes. to detective and did all, all those different things. What was different through that time because of what you learned in the, you know, in the, as an MP, oh. you know, and leaving, what was, what were you, how did you focus differently during those 21 years that well, made it so that you didn't get all, it. you know, you didn't leave again and you didn't lose it. Yeah. Right. Um, I can say that probably not being as naive or optimistic as I was the first time. I can thank the military for basically slapping me in the face with reality. By the time I dealt with the issues in Phoenix and I dealt with some ugly stuff that I still recall, you know, but I can say that I survived it emotionally and psychologically by focusing on something that I had seen that was even worse that I survived. Now, keeping it in that perspective, no matter how ugly it got, and in it, a couple of instances, it got ugly, but I could always fall back on you've seen worse. And you know you can survive that. You survived it. So now you know you can survive this. And then I kind of got into the phase of having young officers because as I was getting older on patrol, a lot of young officers were coming up to me and say, hey, hey, Ray, what about this? Or can you help that? Or what do you think about the other? So I became a training officer. And I think that was probably the most positive, fulfilling position I had because it was like these younger folks who were coming up with this awe-inspiring look in their eye and all that optimism I used to have. And I took on the responsibility that I'd say, you know, guys, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to teach you what I know and you know, always ask, but understand, I don't know it all, but if I don't know, we're going to find out together, that kind of thing. So it was always a positive issue. And I worked with the rookies. I worked with several rookies and I, and I guess they were, as I understand, they were very successful in their careers. A lot of them attributed what they learned from me. I don't hear from them anymore. I mean, times have changed. But as I as I left Phoenix, I would hear from a few going, yeah, I remember what you taught us. I remember what you said. Or I still remember what you did. And I still follow what you told me. So I think that was probably the most fulfilling for me. And it was also cathartic because it was like I'd come full circle from my own sense of loss and frustration and inequity to the point of where, hey, I'm actually making a positive difference to the ones who are going to make a significant difference down the road. Now, before we jump over to the tribal side of stuff, because okay. I'm, I'm, I'm quite curious about this, but during that time, what were the key things mentally wise that you would recommend to the new officers? Because I know we're in this massive era at the moment again, where it's almost mm -hmm. like it's gone back to where, how you, how it was in the you know military when you had the, the mm -hmm. minorities and there's there's all this stuff going on with law enforcement currently especially in the mm -hmm. united states but it's now it's, it's it's majorly hitting you know worldwide but there's the thing around yeah. you know oh we can't lock these people up because you know they're they're african-american or they're you know natives or you know because of the minority side, side of stuff and you're getting a lot of cops that well at least what i'm hearing from them is you know a lot of disheartened cops of i can't do my job mm -hmm. i'm not able to do it what would be the key things that you would pass on or from your experience of seeing it, you know, back in the seventies through all the way till, mm. till now, what would be the key things that you would, that you would say to them, or you'd like to say to them, or you'd recommend so that they don't end up okay. like you did when you came out of the military after, <laughs> you know, because you, you really did, you burned out because the same things that are going on in law enforcement right now, you burned out mm -hmm. back in the seventies because of the same mm -hmm. stuff. 
what would be the key things that you would tell them to so that they don't end up where you did coming out of the military okay. and you know want to leave the job as, as such well I, the first one of the things uh, i would say to them and i think i've said it actually to some of my rooks that i trained in some officer that uh, we spoke about together i said um Law enforcement, when I came on, like you said, in the 70s, and I came on at the end of the 70s, law enforcement has changed. Law enforcement is always changing. Um, and I used to tell them, you are, I said, I know what you heard in the academy. And this is another thing that had to do with this, maybe the culture of policing. Uh, I learned as maybe as an administrator, I didn't understand it, but I kind of have a better idea. Is it the culture of policing changes? And I can say back in the day, we used to use the carotid control technique. And I was trained in that. Um, yes, I have used it many times. And yes, I knew what the Phoenix death drop was. And that was, that's another story for another day. So I don't know if the statute of limitations run out on that. So at any rate, this was, this was understood as applicable, reasonable force. You swing on a cop, you're going to get choked out. You're going to get put to sleep. You know, and I know they call it a chokehold. It's not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a control hold. And, but the point is, it was acceptable at that time. You know, um, officers were, they had power at the fingertips in those days. You know, if you were told to stand and do, you did. If you didn't, well, you're going to kiss the pavement if it comes down to it. But I mean, there was a, the mentality was, and I think a lot of officers still have it today, is you ask them, tell them, make them. It's a three-dimensional uh, approach to somebody who might be balking a little bit. The, the point of fact is, though, America has, and I'm sure the world has as well, they have evolved from those days, a formal confrontation. Because remember, in those days, many departments hired officers who were six foot only, minimum and plus. And they hired officers who had a eighth grade education. You know, strong back, weak mind, one of those, that was kind of the crack of it. Point of it, in reality though, is now you have departments that hire for what? Minimum two years of college, high restrictions are gone. You have more, you have a better educated police officer out there now. But the one factor that I think has not evolved is the culture of many departments. An officer goes into his department, he becomes an element of that culture. And that culture is often expressed by senior guys who have been there, done that, and the academy's full of crap because you know the captain doesn't know what he does because he's in the office all day. And the lieutenant's, you know, he's breaking for coffee every 30 minutes. As long as a sergeant doesn't call you in, you're good to go. And back in the day, if it didn't happen, because it's not anybody reporting it on video, it didn't happen. So there were cultures, there were cultures out there that, you know, young officers were caught up in the trap of trying to learn what was going on. So when I was, and I got to say Phoenix was, had some of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't throughout the ranks. It was just uh, some of us. I used to call them the dinosaurs. Some of the old dinosaurs were still there from the 60s. So they knew what it was like. It was hats and bats time for them if, if somebody crossed them. But for us, it was like trying to talk them down, be reasonable, use the verbal judo, all the things that came up. Policing took on the, the nuances, community-based policing, community-oriented policing, community-aware policing. But ultimately, at the end, it was the cop and the bad guy trying to protect the citizen. And then now today, as, as I saw today, you see a transpire up. I think a lot of these young officers look at the culture that they're involved in, and many of them still carry the old attitudes of ask them, 
tell them, make them. And when you can't exert that kind of authority like we did, because everyone, everybody's got a digital phone and every every video is interpreted based on who's looking at it. We didn't have that issue. So we essentially dealt with the streets the way we did. These young officers, I know some of them have heard those stories and are gonna go out there and do as these guys did because that's how the culture is. And the problem is now they're frustrated even more so because you know, they're like, okay, I did, I'm doing my job, Jesus, you know what? You know, and again, it's the, it's the, uh, how would you say, the condemnation from the ones that you're meant to protect that I think frustrates these younger officers more so than anything else. And the other issue is the other factor, these young officers, even officers say with five to 10 years, because I think I could say most of them may experience some type of burnout by their fifth year on the force. Okay. And what they're hearing also now, they're part of that culture because if they don't respond, as others have responded, they're the outcast because the, the people they're relying on are may take a while to get there, not to tighten them up, but to say, hey, look, we're the only difference between them and, and us. And I'm not saying this is every department. I'm not saying it's throughout American policing or throughout the world. What I'm saying is there are still elements that these newer officers now come out of the academy with the same optimism and within the first year, they're not the same person. Within three to five years, they're looking at frustration. And at five years, definitely looking at the burnout if it's continuing. And when they transcend to where they go to their peers for support, whatever that support manifests as on the street, that's what they're going to exhibit. And when that's called into question by the administrator who is talking to City Hall about the nuances of policing, only to find out you just got this suspect tuned up in the back by who knows who. And now it's an internal. Why? Because that's how you do things. Okay, now it's like, what do we do here? I'll give you an example. The issue with what happened with the Chauvin, or Chauvin the officer who killed that gentleman on video. Yeah. The suspect, the yeah. yeah. Everybody, I think, in America, I mean, every cop I talked to, good, young, old, whatever, they said, wrong flat out wrong no way you know it crossed the line and then i heard the admin i sat back as a chief and i listened because i was a training officer and i was an administrator and i listened to some of the comments made by their commanders you know how it was this was not an acceptable issue and i kept thinking wait a minute commander that's your division how did you not know this was going on and when this officer had his knee in that guy's back spine or wherever it was where was the sergeant where was the sergeant for that time frame? I mean to tell you, in Phoenix, and I mean Phoenix is a spread out metropolitan city, and we didn't have that many cops in the, back in the day, but we had sergeants. I know we had sergeants because as soon as my shift started, somebody went in the back room and cloned at least a dozen, maybe two dozen extra patrol sergeants because everywhere you turn, there was a freaking sergeant sitting on the corner or within minutes of your, hey, I think I need to see a supervisor. You see him coming around the corner. Or worse yet, you've just struggled with a suspect on the ground, cuffing him up, you look up and there's three stripes looking at you going, what happened? Okay, I, I, that was my environment. How did this officer, these officers go through this and the, what, where was the sergeant? Where, that was the first thing I asked. Now, and I said, commander, you don't know what was happening there or you, you don't believe this, this was you know routine, fine. 
Have you asked your lieutenant, your sector commander, whoever, where were they when this was going down? In other words, if that department was pushing the narrative around and it was landing on the officers in the street, I know I could almost surmise that in that department, other elements were being pushed around by command and the officers on the street saw the lack of support. And that goes back to the culture of the department. And that only feeds to the frustration. So getting back to your question, now that I've got my big narrative here, uh, to my young officers, I used to tell them, I said, the failing of every rook that I've ever seen is the failure to make a decision. You're gonna make decisions in your career. You're gonna make good decisions and they're gonna be great. You're gonna make bad decisions. You're gonna wish you had not come to work, but the failing of the rook throughout the training cycle is the failure to make a decision. Stand by it based on your training, based on what you know, and follow through. Don't base it on the emotion at the time. You know, once the cuffs go on, the fight is over. If it gets personal, you do what you need to do to defend yourself. Otherwise, you use what you were trained to do to take him down, and that's how we'll operate. I said, number two, the rule of the day is to go home at the end of your shift. That's our rule. We're going to say a lot of things, but we go home at the end of the shift. What you take home is your choice. Before you leave this building, if you got something to say, I'm in the back with coffee. We'll sit down. And I did several times with guys going, what did you think about this? Or what did you think about that? And we would talk it through. And if I thought it was something really serious by the next shift, I'd be going, hey, did you talk to your family about that? Have you talked to somebody else like the counselor, the department counselor, not the shrink, the, you know, the counselor. Did you talk to your, did you talk to your priest, your rabbi, your clergy? Did you talk to somebody, your uncle, who was maybe a cop who understands? Did you talk to somebody who could relate to this pressure and emotional upheaval that you got somewhere, you know, besides me, your training officer? And then finally, I used to tell them, I said, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you think is going sideways or how you think it should turn out, before you go off half cocked like I used to, I said, keep this in mind. Keep your sense of humor. Don't lose your sense of humor. If you can keep that, you're not going to explode. Trust me. And I said, other people, I'm not saying you got to laugh like an idiot. What I'm saying is keep this focus in the back of your mind that this is bad. This is ugly. But damn, I'm going home at the end of the shit. And the sense of humor is, well, hey, it sucks to be you, but I'm going home. That kind of thing. I did my job. And those were kind of the rules I told to my young officers that I was training them and folks that I worked with. And when I was a chief of police, when my officers would come in and sit down and talk to me, even as commander of my of patrol division, um, we would just talk like you and I are talking, and I would tell them the same thing. And I think a lot of them took it to heart, and they're still officers today, those that have retired anyway. That's also the area I was going to ask when you know when you were chief of police and when you're commander on the reservation, because as you said at the very beginning, it's a it's completely different. You've got to you know the who, what, where's like all these different, <laughs> it's like, what the, I, was, I didn't realize it was, I knew that it was complex, but I didn't realize that it was that complex. Like you were saying, I was mm -hmm. like, my brain's going to explode right now. And I, <laughs> we it's haven't gotten into show. details about it. <laughs> it's a whole new show. Uh, but, you know, as, as once you got to the res and you got to the reservation, you started policing at that next level of stress as well. And I know like I've, I've talked to police officers. I was at a, a, a first responders um, wellness uh, conference in Ventura. And I was talking with some guys that were 
they worked on they weren't you know indians or natives or anything at all they were um, actually one of them was an african-american guy one was like a white guy and he works at a, on a reservation up in washington and mm-hmm. i didn't realize this kind of thing but how do you how did you help those officers that were coming in that maybe didn't live on the reservation or you know deal with that stress when you were chief of police how'd you make sure from leadership because i know this is one thing that is coming out a lot at the moment is it's all about leadership, mm-hmm. leadership, leadership, mm-hmm. as you even said, for the support of the guys at the bottom, how'd you lead differently to maybe some of the leaders that you had seen before to make sure <laughs> that those um, patrol officers had that support and didn't get overly stressed out, made sure that they, you know, kept that enjoyment, that fun, kept things into perspective. What was it that you feel you did a little bit different then? Um mm. That well, helped out, if anything. Well, I would say for my career, I use that as an example of what not to do as a police officer. Don't let it get to you to that point. And I stress that on my younger officers. I didn't administer as a chief or even a commander from behind the desk. I got out there and answered shag calls with these guys. Just to give you an idea, um, the reservation that I worked at at the time had was like 642, 147 square miles southeast of Phoenix. It was the most second most violent Indian reservation in the BIA law enforcement system. It had a homicide rate that would go par none per capita with a lot of areas. It had violence up the wazoo with guns and drugs, you name it, they did it. Assaults on officers were almost something to be expected per shift. You know, you were basically going into Dodge City sometimes. Now, we used, to, we used to try to run as many officers as possible, which meant on a given day and a given shift, we had maybe three to five officers tops. That's patrol. One sergeant, three to five officers. Now, I say three officers because our squads were so short that there would be a sergeant and three officers actually manning the shift. And we worked four tens. So on a Friday night, which was obviously a hot night, like Fridays and Saturdays, we would try to do double squad night, which gave us five officers on shift. So we were we were fat on Fridays, fat Fridays with five officers and a, and a sergeant. Yeah. So the commander at the time, I went in and I would I would just come on the air, and if not, I would go out to an area where they're they're hitting calls right and left, and I'd follow in with them. You know, not to critique what they were doing. That was the first thing out of my mouth because there's like, oh, commander, what are you doing here? And I'm like, are you all right? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Handle it. If you don't need help, I'll, I'll pull out. After a while, they got their, they got to understand that Commander Neho was going to be out there. He's not, he's not policing from behind the desk. And then I, I told my staff when I first got there, all the sergeants, you know, something an old commander told me. He said, sergeants, at this, this was in Phoenix, he goes, sergeants, I'm telling you, don't generate paper to my level for the sake of generating paper. I don't want to see anything on my desk unless you couldn't deal with it at your level. And then he looked at us, us officers and he said, officers, you're going to generate paper. So I expect you to sergeants, you handle the paper lieutenants. You better handle what the sergeants bring you. Cause if it hits my desk, I'm going to ask the first thing, did the sergeant handle this? Could he have handled it? And if he couldn't lieutenant, you and the sergeant are going to be in front of me, leave the officers alone. Now he was, his name was Bob Kessner. He was old, old school. He was old school commander, and he was about the officers. And that's where I learned some of the principles of leadership, you know, from him, just watching him in action. So I told my people the same thing. I told my sergeants, 
Don't be generating paper to impress me as a commander. I don't want to see it. The paper comes to my desk. You and I will talk about it. You handle it at your level. I said to the guys, you get out there, do your work, make sure you get it done, take care of the paper. And then I told them, I said, if you're right, I'll stand beside you. If you're wrong, you'll stand in front of me. I said, I said, it's going to be either one way or the other, but I will not ignore your right to bring your case to bear whatever it is. Okay. I know we're going to get complaints. I expect it. I will deal with it. And if I can't, it'll go through your sergeant. It's not an accusation. I want to get to the facts. And if you're right, I stand behind you. If you're wrong, you'll stand in front of me. So the guys knew that was the standard that I put down as far as it went. And yes, I did have to have a couple of, you know, what they call um, father-son talks with a couple of the officers. And I remember the one that my commander had with me. And I remember these words, they're, they're really great. And I hope some commander someplace will use them. When the, I, I was the officer that screwed up. This is in Phoenix. I did. I messed up a call. And I was going to get disciplined for it. I knew it. So, you know, you accept it. You accept the fact it's coming. But I went before the captain. And when you go before the captain, you know, it's going to be a written or whatever. But in, but in Commander Kessner's case, he looked at your back record. He looked at your entire file. If you were a screw up, he knew it. But if you were out there doing your job, he knew that too. So there was always a mitigation with the man. And he wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt. So if you were constantly dropping the ball, okay, he would definitely be letting you know. But if it was a one or two time thing and it wasn't all, you know, wasn't serious where he could handle his level, he would take mitigating factors into account. Well, in this respect, I get called before him. And he, I remember his words, and like I said, I hope some commander uses this on his own someday. He says, Ray, I just want you to know something. He said, I want you to picture this, okay? This is my desk and I have this bucket. He said, okay, just picture this bucket on my desk. And I'm looking at him going, okay. He said, in this bucket, I have a level of shit that goes right here to the top. I'm going, all right. He said, now what? He goes, normally, he said, I can handle that level of shit right here. And I can deal with it. Not a problem. That's my job. He goes, then you come along and take a rock and you drop it right in the middle of my bucket. And I'm like, sir, he goes, I just want you to know when that shit flies everywhere, how much paper it's going to take me to clean up your mess. Yes, sir. Don't do it again. And I never forgot it. That was my only butt chewing I got from the captain. I got his official supervisory counsel. And uh, I always remember the bucket of shit analogy. And I hope some commander uses it on a young officer to set him straight. Use, use correctly like it was on me and like I used on my officers. It really hit home because they're like, holy crap, he's right. You know, I messed this up, but he's not, he's chewing my butt, but he's not eating me alive. And I'm going to have a job in the morning and they're going to go out and do better. And that's really what I instilled to wanted to do as a commander. So in my supervisory and administrator roles, I would sit down with those that needed it. I put those parameters in place. And when it came down to guys, like say in the frustration portion that were suffering from burnout, because I did have a few guys that would, they would come to me and say, commander, I'm going to quit. I, I can't take it anymore. We would go into, you know, just tell me why. All I'm asking, I said, I'm not telling you to quit. Just tell me why. And we would sit and I maybe we'd go to lunch and have coffee and, and they're like, well, why am I talking to you? Kind of thing. Cause they're not sure they're talking, should be talking to the boss. 
And I'm saying, no, your decision is what you're going to make. If it's not for you, you decide, but take your time. And I remember one young officer, he came in and he was just like downtrodden, beaten. It's like his whole purpose in being a cop was in the trash. So I, I just told him, I said, you know, let me ask you something. And he goes, what? I said, you didn't, you didn't wake up one day and just say, you know what? I don't want to be a cop anymore. This has been building for a while, hasn't it? And he goes, well, yeah. I said, well, do me a favor then. I'd like you to go back, not on your, in your end days, your off days. I'd like you to come back after your three days off and tell me what changed. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, when you entered the academy, you were all about wanting to do the work, wanting to do the job, wanting to get out there. I said, tell me what changed. When you hit the road, you know, your first time, you were all excited about taking that call, doing the, doing the right thing. And he goes, well, yeah, tell me what changed. Come back and tell me what changed, okay? And, I, and he did. And we had another long talk after his end. And I said, look, if you want to go, it'll be your choice. I said, but we, I said, you're a good cop. I've seen your record. I said, if there's something we can do to help you, something I can do to help you, let me know now. I know I'm limited on resources, but I'll do what I can. But I said, understand if you need some time off. Okay, let's get you where you need to go. He promoted sergeant about uh, two years later. Stuck it out. Came went through with his career. And uh, I don't know if he attributes that little talk we had, but I know he was ready to go that night. He would have walked in at the end of his end days and gave up the badge. So it was more, I think, a, a, an intrinsic human approach to affect the culture of my department, a real hands-on with my guys to let them know that, yeah, there's going to be some crap that happens. There's going to be ugly that happens. There's politics and innuendo and all that's going to happen. But if you stick to what you've been trained, you do the way you were trained, you follow through with your expertise and you keep your sense of humor that doesn't put you out there at odds with a prosecutor or other investigative agency. I said, you're going to do fine. You're going to come through this. And so, so far, a lot of them have. You know, it's, 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 it's so true. You know, through our conversation, we've been, you know, we've gone from, you know, you were burned out. You were doing things that you weren't too happy with. You were, you know, you, you insinuated around, you know, you, you found the bottle like so many officers do. You came, you you found, you, you know, you, you took a break. You, you then figured out, Hey, wait a second. No, this purpose is me. I do need to do this. And you carried on to do another 25, 30 years of law enforcement all the way up to chief and use that stuff from the very beginning. You learn from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's so impressive to see because you don't see it that often. You see a lot of cops to get to that 30 years and they're just like, not nah, like, and they're just there waiting to take over and, and retire. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're, they're the, they're the, you know, they're the worst leaders in my, in my, they're not even leaders, to be honest, they don't even deserve that name. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's a lot of them out there that are, that are trying to do good. And I appreciate you, Ray, for being here and telling us all of this. The one question okay. that I do have for you, obviously, as chief of police, you, I've, I've interviewed a lot of chiefs. Mm hmm you guys have a lot on your plate from the paperwork, from the politics, from the, you know, on the reservation, I'm sure it's even worse because you've got the, you got the elders and you got, you got the jurisdiction stuff. You've got so much more even, you know, on the, on the, on the Absolutely. tribe, but yet, but yet you said, as you said, and this is the one common thing that I hear constantly from these good leaders, from these stations that have good leadership that, you know, they don't lose officers very often is that they're out there with their people. They aren't sitting there, sitting in an office all the time. They will make sure that they're out there at least every so often to let their officers know, hey, I'm here with you. I'm not just, at, at, you know, my ivory tower, you know, telling you and pointing fingers down at you. 
how did you make sure that that happens? Because I know at that level, I can't say that I've ever been at that level. I've only heard from talking with other mm -hmm. people, but at that level, there's a lot to do. There is even more paperwork. There is even more stuff that is on your mind. There's even more stress in different ways than just, is that person going to kill me? How do you make sure that you prioritize your officers and actually made the time to get out there without destroying your family and without, you know, getting behind on stuff that you had to do in the office? Well, family support is, is, is significant, especially with these long hours. And uh, you got to give kudos to the wives of the spouses that walk in the, uh, they walk through the battlefield with you, but they only see the result later on. I mean, there's no stress releaser for them except you. And if you come home with that, like a bear on your shoulder there, a burn, with a burr in your saddle, you're definitely going to cause some issues. So I give kudos to the spouses to support in these situations. Uh, when it comes down to putting forth what I did, I can tell you it was a conscious decision. I mean, it's true. You're going to have budget issues. Yes, you're going to have resource issues. Yes, you're going to have political issues that you're going to be dealing with. You're going to have officer-involved issues that are going to be publicized, condemned at, at the, any level, both tribal and even questioned at the federal level, which was another fun and frolic in agencies to work with. But the point being, the commodity that meant the most is the officer on the street or the detective, you know, or the division or whatever you want to call them. I don't care if they were SROs. I don't care if they're community action officers, bike officers, whatever, you know, straight up patrol, street crimes, whatever your division calls them. If they're not out there taking that call, if they're not out there responding to that call, your purpose for being there is secondary. You know, some chiefs, and I hate to say it because I did see some, some chiefs and administrators felt almost seemed like their position was a result of all the effort from their subordinates. In other words, their subordinates were there to support the chief's position. The chief existed on the backs of his people, not the fact that the chief relied on his subordinates to be in that position. Because I think as many administrators know, life expectancy on many departments is what, three to five years? In Indian country, it's likely if you're two or less. So change at the top is, de is destabilizing big time. Yet Indian country goes through that like you're changing, you know, like you're going to the dentist. I mean, it, it comes to a point where you just do it almost a routine. It's like, well, who's the chief today? Well, who's the chief now? Well, they, they got an acting. I used to hear that a lot when I was commander. Well, who's the chief? Well, I got an acting. Another one? Yeah. So we'll see how long on that one lasts. And I admit to my, before you sing my accolades, I got to tell you, because of my principles and because of my um, conduct as, a, as an administrator, the programs that I put through, and in the manner I dealt with the politics, my program was reviewed twice my, as, a, as an administrator, which means I got suspended twice. <laughs> but I came back, which is something that had not been seen before, not once, but twice. I came back three times. I was suspended twice, came back three times. And that was unheard of to actually say, my God, you actually survived a, an interior review because politically they were trying to remove me. And what had I done? I'd increased the staffing. I'd increased the support staff. We upgraded our communications. We, give, we were given awards for uh, first responder uh, 
communications award. We had increased our officers pay. I stabilized the patrol sections to have one sergeant overseeing one squad of personnel, not delegating duties like it was before in rotation. Uh, we were gaining more vehicles, more technology, better firearms, better training. And for that, my program was reviewed twice. So, I mean, there were, I'm not bragging or saying I got everything right. I didn't, but I never forgot that the purpose of my being there was to support the personnel who did the work. I mean, all the stats that I put down were what they accumulated, all the research and, and the academics that I had to do for the department was based on their sweat and their blood, their sacrifice, all of it. And that's why I said, you know, there's no reason why I can't give them a couple of hours and find out exactly what they're going through, especially on graveyard. You know, everybody thought, oh God, Nahum's out here because they heard car one. They heard car one, everybody's going to behave. So what I would do is I would ask, I'd ask radio, don't clear me. I'm just going to follow in on the call. Tell me over the phone that they're going. And I would show up. And then my excuse was, no, nah, no, nah, I'm coming. I was just going through the area, guys. I kind of saw the cars and just seeing how you're doing. So then it was like, you got to watch it. You don't know if the chief is out there or not. But then the word come out says, he's not out to burn you. He's out there backing you up. So even the folks who are a little bit skeptical, they became supporters. But again, did I get it right all the time? No, I did not. Could I have done more for my guys? I think I could have for the men and women, especially in the structure of the department and the growth that was necessary. And again, money, there's never enough money for policing the way it should be. But if you can impact your community with what you have as a resource, even to a small degree, it's still an impact. And if your people are out there believing that you would support their effort, sacrifice for doing even one nth degree or one degree, then you know what? You've met your criteria. Resources can come later. Money can be allocated another year if necessary. But if in that year you could do what you did with what you had, you're a success. And if your people can point to that and say, yeah, we didn't have a lot, but we got it done. We, we had to do this or that or the other. And the chief or the commander was behind us the whole way. Rather have that than all the money and the fancy technology in the world and an officer saying, yeah, it's great stuff, but don't touch it because the chief will have your ass. Where's the, where's the trade-off? Yeah, so. exactly. No, it's, it's, I love that way of policing, you know, and you put it into pretty simple, uh, you know, terms and I, I, I like it and I want to, you know, rebring it up and and um you know put some emphasis on it the fact of you're in that position because of the you know you're you're there to support the guys that are below you not them to support you and it's a it's a completely different way of thinking it you know as you go up in the ranks a lot of times i remember when i was in you know when i was still in law enforcement and it was it was that thing of you know oh you know they're in that they're in that position and you know they're you know they're there, um, you know, and we've got to look up to them, but it's actually should be the other way around. They should look up to the guys be below them and be like, okay, you know, what, what is it that I can do to support you? Not how can you support me? Because it really exactly. is all around, you know, the, the guys at the bottom are doing all the grunt work. Exactly. And if I can say one thing to a commander who's striving to make his name or make his bones over his, over in his department, keep this in mind, you know, it's frustrating for a commander to be out there as chief or administrator, be out there all the time. You know, they may not say it, but it is frustrating for them to try to be out there causing change. Cops hate change. That's rule number one. Cops hate change. They love gadgets. They hate change. 
The problem with the Chiefs, though, I will tell you, Chiefs, if you're trying to strive to force the change, I'm going to let you know a little secret. It is easier, way easier, for you to expel 30% of energy to gain 70% of adjustment versus expending 90% of your effort demanding and receiving 10% of change. And if you have, often administrators, if you haven't figured that out, there's a, there's a reason you're losing sleep. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I th thank you. Thanks, Ray. I, I don't know where we go from that. That's like a that's like a wrap up comment right there, man. Um, <laughs> we didn't get to that, talk about the jurisdiction. So I know we didn't get to talk time. about the jurisdiction. No, let's actually talk about that. You know, let's take some time okay. and talk about that. I'm, I'm happy to spend a little bit of extra time because it comes into that stress side of stuff. You know, we're losing officers faster. A 2019 study showed that 25, 23 percent of officers. No, sorry, 26 percent of officers left the job because of mental wellness or burnout mm -hmm. yes and is status is is the statistic still accurate that i think we lost 100 some officers last year to violence in in the line of duty in the united mm -hmm. states and we're still losing four times that many to suicide yeah something I think like that, that. and, and, and yeah. you know and that's and that's that's numbers of officers that we know of not even retired officers or like you know the numbers are all but it, they're still really bad mm -hmm. but you know we can save one lots of money because it takes so much to train somebody just mm -hmm. by looking after our officers plus also then you have the you know how do we stop the suicide well we look after our officers and i'm not mm -hmm. saying turn a blind eye to you know excess uses of force or but those excess uses of force also directly coincide with burnout because as you said even back in your early days when you were burned out you weren't productive your mind was elsewhere you were making mistakes mm -hmm. because you were burned out your mind was somewhere mm -hmm. else exactly so if we do take that we look at you know the the res because you know you're even higher stressful you know position than just the you know the this you know normal policing you know in say a, a normal city or sheriff's office not to put, you know, that they aren't stressed out and they don't have lots going on, but you have extra stuff because you're having to think of around all this different stuff. You then have the public, the the natives, you know, going, hey, why aren't you arresting this person for what they've done? And mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? Right. How, how, did, how did you deal with that? And how did you help your officers deal with that, that, that well, jurisdiction side? Even, you know, you maybe even go into the jurisdiction, what it exactly it looks okay. like um, first. Okay. All right. For those of you that don't understand American policing, especially Indian reservations, there are two sets of federal laws that govern it. Um, the first is a public law 280, which in its structure allows for the county sheriffs of a given state or county to enter into the Indian reservations and police the reservation like they are anywhere else. Okay. In the second federal standard is public law 638. That requires the fact of either the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Law Enforcement Division, or Law Enforcement Services, Bureau Cops, BIA Cops, these are federal officers of the Bureau of Indian Affairs Department of Interior, known to many natives as the Boston Indians Around Agency, the BIA. So that's, I had to throw that in there because I don't think they'd forgive me on the res if I didn't. But the point of fact is these are federal officers and they under contract from the Department of Interior. When the Tribal Self-Determination Act was passed in the 60s, 70s, Tribes were allowed to hire their own public safety departments, i.e. tribal police. Now, the problem is the jurisdictional picture 
very quickly, is ultimately under the control of the federal government or the U.S. attorney, okay? Which means in Indian country, because of, quote, dependent sovereignty of the tribal nations, the federal authority is limited based on the types of crimes that they will investigate. And without getting into a lot of mumble jumble jurisdiction here, just understand serious crimes are federal offenses. You know, they're limited, but they are federal. Other crimes involving native on native or na Indian on Indian or Indian on Indian victim enterprise is tribal by priority. Non-Indian on non-Indian occurring within the reservation, not involving an Indian or Indian enterprise is under the state jurisdiction. So you have all three jurisdictions in hand at the same time. Now you would think that would work out pretty well, except when you have a non-Indian who victimizes an Indian. Now the most obvious one is domestic, domestic violence. You have a non-Indian partner who injures an Indian partner or destroys the Indian partner's home on the reservation. Unless the federal government files the assault charge under the federal statute, there would have been no prosecution of that non-Indian for victimizing the Indian. Why? Because he's non-Indian and tribal court cannot prosecute, administer justice under tribal law. Yeah. So what you essentially and it, have- and it, can't be, and it can't be done, it can't be done under, under the state. state. Under state. Now, there has been a new decision, so I will get up to date here. There has been a new decision called Castro Huerta, which has allowed the state to step into allowing for prosecution of non-Indians where Indians are victims. Again, this is a cost issue and measure because you know as well as I do, every prosecution costs, every incarceration costs. Indian reservations don't pay county taxes. Who supplements the jail? County taxes. So you can have a whole bunch of Indian prisoners from tribal court or even state court, and somebody's going to pay for their lodging and food. So that's just one argument, but we won't go there. Let's say for the simple fact, though, that the, the law still st stand as they do. Again, federal law is supposed to be the serious crimes. Now, I don't know if in Australia and New Zealand, where you are at, is... Is there a differentiation between misdemeanor and felony? Yeah, so there's the thing called um, Summary Offenses Act, which is like your lower end uh, things, which will okay. be like misdemeanors. And then there's the Crimes okay. Act, which is your higher, which has a higher penalties okay. to it. Um, but we're all, all right. one giant police force, so we don't have state and federal type thing. Okay. But it is, right. there is that, there is that kind of, it's a lower end charge. Like you can have domestic violence assault that is summary offenses, which is a lower end one, which would be, you know, a, a minor offense. And then you have Crimes Act, which would be, a high end it's going it's going bigger could possibly end up in the high court versus the district court okay so to understand the jurisdiction of tribal law versus federal criminal law now this is only under the public law 638 standard that allows for tribal criminal law to be administered by a tribal court and the u.s attorney to administer federal law in the u.s district court state law is not is not involved not at this point so if i have a, if you have a native who is from a reservation and uh, say any given reservation, commits a crime on a reservation. Let's say he kills somebody, okay? He actually kills somebody. He had a passion situation, maybe they're drunken partying, whatever, you know, and uh, more of a negligent homicide, what we would call it here. Okay, let's say the federal government, which is the only game in town to handle that serious felony offense, which is what they're supposed to, 
tell you, police, well, it's a good case, but I don't think we can get a conviction, so we're not going to charge him. So now the tribal court says, well, okay, we'll charge him. All right. Now today, that Indian would be facing misdemeanor incarceration for that offense. Okay, you know what that means. Okay, if he were non-native, he would not be facing any charges because the federal government, who is the has the plenary power over the reservation, refused to indict. Now, that has changed somewhat because I can tell you the horror story that brought this up was an Indian who was from, say, Reservation A. He killed a young boy. He was on Reservation B, okay, where he killed a young boy. Okay, the boy was visiting his parents and he lived on Reservation C. Now, three reservations are involved. Okay, the suspect from Reservation A is looking, he's drunk, they're popping up beer cans or whatever. A, a shot goes in. The boy from Reservation C visiting his parents or his aunt and uncle on Reservation B is struck by the bullet and killed. Now, the U.S. attorney declined prosecution. Why? because the witnesses were intoxicated. They didn't have a reasonable likelihood of conviction, which is often quite a bit of other things. There's another rule that I heard they went by. At any rate, so the only person that could look at this was the tribal court, which would have only been able to infar, inf, inflict misdemeanor accountability for the homicide, right? One year, that's it, if that. But here's the thing, the he was convicted in the tribal court of reservation B for the killing of the boy who was actually an Indian from reservation C, but he was a suspect from reservation A. These are the players. So he appeals his conviction to the, to the ninth circuit, which is the federal circuit out here. And he says, I'm not an Indian from that reservation. The victim I shot, actually, you know, I claim you know, negligently was not an Indian from that reservation. He was from another reservation. So because he's not from your reservation and I'm not from your reservation, you can't charge me in your reservation. And the Ninth Circuit said, you know what, that makes sense. And they set aside the conviction. Well, that was, set, that was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court heard the same argument and they said, that makes sense. You have Indian from Reservation A killed a boy from Reservation C who was visiting relatives on reservation B, the tribal court can't convict him. The feds declined it and they're the only ones who could. So there's nothing more we can do. You have to release them. Well, that caused issue with the whole structure of jurisdiction. And it changed. Thank God Congress came through and they, they petitioned the issue. He escaped accountability for that killing. But he also it also turned out that they did change the law. Now the law says any Indian from any reservation who commits an offense on any other reservation, which would be a crime anywhere else, is subject to the administration of a penal offense in that reservation, regardless of whether you're from there or not. But that actually happened. So you have you had misdemeanor homicide, you have misdemeanor child abuse, you have misdemeanor rape, you have misdemeanor aggravated assault. You know, it depends on the jurisdiction of the tribe and what they say. Now, you remember, I said this was under the structure of Public Law 638, the federal oversight. Remember, I said there's a second one called Public Law 280. 
Under Public Law 280 in certain states, because the sheriff's office has the full authority to enforce criminal statute, tribal courts can be established to administer justice within the respective reservations on Indians alone, okay? But their jurisdiction is civil. So if an Indian from the reservation commits an aggravated assault domestic violence, which would say assault with a deadly weapon, and the state refuses to charge, the tribe can only go to the tribal court and request a civil sanction. You might say that could cause a little bit of frustration on the part of the arresting officer. <laughs> a little, just a little bit. So the okay. sheriff, the sheriff, so the sheriff only does the federal stuff, or do they do state stuff as well within the res? On the in the public law two eighty situation the, uh, umbrella, they do state only, and the feds under that umbrella basically wash their hands with a lot of the enforcement. Sadly. One of the biggest things you probably read about is the MMIW programs, the men, murdered and missing indigenous women. One of the reasons is the failing of resources to be applied at a federal level to work in conjunction like a task force to search for some of these folks. You know, if you leave it to local jurisdictions, many county sheriffs like say in Montana and Colorado, et cetera, they're not equipped to go across state lines to try to get to issues and, and really follow up. So there's a lot of animosity there and a lot of suspicion, tragically. And because I can tell you, I remember there was a task for this is just an off story, but I was helping out a, a group of folks who were talking about MMIW issues in San Diego County. Now, the state of California has a human trafficking task force. I know because I, I was talking to the commander before he retired. And we were talking about the influence of that issue on Indian reservations just in San Diego County because they were getting the Indians were getting reports of people coming into the casino. And approaching young female Indians uh, and kind of, you know, enticing them into moving on. Well, their whole purpose, as they told me from the state task force, they would move into Indian country as requested if they could establish intelligence, viable intelligence, that such activity was going on. Who was responsible for getting the viable intelligence? Well, it was the sheriff's office. The sheriff's office had one guy assigned to that, to the Indian reservations, 18 reservations in one county, one guy did. And I, so I asked him, I said, how many reports, how many, you know, how many emails, anything have you gotten on the intelligence side to indicate there's any kind of activity like that going on? His answer, zero. How many cases has the task force investigated under in, um, MMIW circumstances that could be human trafficking under other aspects? None. I said, has the task force approached or even thought about going into the casino areas and just uh, developing their own intelligence to see if these claims, which the Indian people were saying were happening, they because they're relying on, remember I said the sheriff's office in California to enforce a criminal statute? Rather than rely on the, on the uh, sheriff's office, why didn't they listen or why weren't the Indian people approaching it? And the answer was, well, they don't really trust us with the information. And I'm sitting there going, can you see why? You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but can you see why? And so, I did, you know, I talked, yeah. So how do you, how do you, obviously being the chief, how do you help okay. your officers overcome officer? this stressful, yeah, a young officer, oh, okay. like how do you, what, how do you help this young officer overcome this stressful thing of, 
because you know you hear it in law enforcement all the time i heard it through my whole career i ended up kind of preaching that message as well for a while as a cop because i was burned out and you know when you're burned out you you, you succumb to it a lot faster and a lot more but mm-hmm. how did you how do you how did you and how what would you recommend to those you know officers to, on to, the res to be able to actually sure. deal with that high high level of stress that's beyond even just a normal sheriff or a normal city cop most of the time, uh, the guys that would come to me, we were especially to the younger officers that went to the academy. Academies do not teach this di- disparaging issues of tribal jurisdiction. I wish they did, even in Arizona, but they don't. I used to when I was still doing consulting before I formally retired, retired, and you could I could see the faces in the classes of state officers who worked around reservations, and even tribal officers are going, "Whoa, you know, wow," and and when I had a I had a deputy chief walk up to me in a class going, Ray, I've been at this almost 20 years. I don't know shit about this. I said, but you've got a casino in your jurisdiction. You've got right there next door, all that going on. And your officers are responding to calls for service in a federal enclave where you have no civil protection for them. Have you drafted an, what I call intergovernment agreement, IGA, or at least an MOU? Uh, Never thought about it. Okay, I'm sure he has since, but to the young officers that would like to answer your question, I would sit down and say, look, I know it's gonna be ugly and this is gonna be like something you've never seen before. You're gonna be chastised from both sides. The victims are not gonna trust you if you're not Indian. They're gonna hate you if you are Indian because you're gonna be enforcing the law against their family. These issues are gonna come up. The only thing you can do is focus on your procedures, focus on your training, focus on the reason you're there. Your job is to get that area uh, under control, supplant the, supplant the chaos as best you can, you get out of there in one piece, okay? And we go on to the next call. Don't read into it beyond that. And if you have a question of it, feel free to come in my office. And that's the other thing I would strongly stress with administrators when I was a commander, I could be in my office basically trying to pull my hair out. And that's no joke because I don't have much anymore. But the point is, when I would sit there, my door was always open. And I mean, officers from all ranks, sergeants, you know, even the new ones, the old ones, the old sauce, they'd knock on the door and say, Commander, you got a minute. Now, okay, I learned in, in basic uh, administrative training, there's two ways to answer that. You know, not now, I'm kind of tied up, or honestly make the conscious decision to put down what you're doing, walk around your desk and sit down. I'll say, hey, what's up? What do we got? What's going on? And make that moment the most important moment with them and you in the interaction, because then you become credible that you really care enough to listen to what they got to say. And I think in a lot of cases, the guys just wanted somebody to to bounce something off of. You know, they didn't really go into their whole, you know, case history, but they were like, man, I had a call last night, you know, and you know, boss, you know, commander, I was wondering, what do you think about this? And now they're asking my expertise. First thing out of my mouth is, well, have you discussed this with your sergeant? Well, yeah. I said, what does he say? So we would turn the conversation because I never wanted to undermine my supervisors. And as the sergeants would say, well, he said, well, follow his command. Really? Yeah, follow it up. And if you have questions, go back to him, get him clarified. And if he has questions, both of you come back and see me. I'll be here. And like, yeah, okay. A simple response for an issue for them was critical. Now for me, I'm going, now why didn't you figure that out after they leave? But I'm going, no. You know, you don't do the commander thing. You do the commander thought. You don't do the commander thing. You do the commander thought after they go. But at the time, 
you do honestly listen to what they're saying and give them an option to function and focus. And for the most part, it worked. It worked with them and they were willing to sit down and talk and, you know, they could even interact and laugh and joke and that kind of thing. It, I wasn't so detached from my personnel that they, I wasn't above the cut up and the joking like you get in the squad room, like you would with your peers. And then and if a command officer walked in, buddy's dead, you know, that kind of thing. All of a sudden they lock heels and there it is. I, I can say that because again, I have another example. I injured my knee uh, when I was working there and I had to wear a brace. You know, so I came in one night, third shift was, you know, coming on, second shift was about to go home. And all the guys are sitting there talking in the squadron, basically just doing what cops do. You know, I come walking in with my cane and hobbling with my, with my brace on just to see what's going on. And one of the officers going, hey, commander, what happened? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I hurt my knee. I go, what was it, a mini ball at Ginsburg? And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, that told me I can relate to the rank and file. And that's where I think some, some administrators lose the focus of the fact that it's not so much you came up from the ranks, but you may have forgotten what the ranks were and what they meant and the importance of those ranks, if you don't make the conscious decision to maintain that those guys still there are just as credible as when you were there and they have the same perspective you might have and they and some of them are gonna be looking for the same support that you did. So if you don't, if you forget that and detach yourself as, okay, I'm an administrator now, I got all this stuff I gotta get done. You're gonna have to do that anyway. But the one thing you cannot ignore is the, as I was always believed, was the number one priority, the only asset that really was indispensable. And those are the men and women in your command. No, I love that, right? I love that. It's it's so it's so important for a command to to remember, and also you know at the same time that's how they look after themselves as well. Because you know at the end of the day, if you're looking after them, it's going to fill you up for paperwork as as. As a young officer, you're always told the paperwork will always be there. Don't mm -hmm. get stressed out about it because it will always be there. Um, yes. Ray, last question I want to ask you is, okay. what would you say is your top tip to self-happiness? Ooh, acceptance. Acceptance of the simple fact that everything that I learned over my career, um, I had to learn. And I accepted the fact that it was a learning experience. And I also accepted the fact that I didn't know it all like I thought I did in the very beginning. And I never lost fact of the idea that no matter how bad things could get, there was always another option. Always look for the other option. And now it being fully retired, I can look back on it and say, I didn't get it all right, but I exercise a lot of options. And those options are the legacy that I hear from time to time from the guys and men and women who are still in those ranks going, hey chief, do you remember when we did this? Or I remember when you said that. And uh, that to me is probably the one solidifying uh, factor, if you will, that really uh, imparts the, cred the credibility that I got it right most of the time. And I can live with that now. I can live with the fact that, you know, I was a cop, not I am a cop or I was a cop, but I'd say I, my career was to be a cop. That was why I worked as a cop. I'm not a cop any longer. I just worked as a cop. So that acceptance there as time goes on is that the legacy you leave is what others are going to impart 
And the difference you may have made or not made is only going to be gauged by the success or failures of those that you train or those that listen to you and are now out there doing exactly what you did or even better than you did it. So to me, that was justification for all of them. You know, it was worth, it was worth everything I put myself through, but it was also worth learning the experience because uh, like I said, I didn't get it all right, but I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied that I got most of it. I love it. Yes. Acceptance. Uh, Ray, before we wrap up, uh, any last words that you'd like to say? Uh, No, I hope I got some message across to some folks that are listening to you. And if they ever want to hear the rice and beans story, we'll, uh, you know, have hit me up. Uh, I'd be more than happy to share it. <laughs> yes, yes. The rice and beans story is a is an interesting one. It's a funny one, which we didn't get to talk about here. A little bit of backstory okay. is between it's between our mutual good friend uh, Brandon Griffith, who yes. uh, is his his um his mission's very close. You know, after talking with him, uh, it's very close to me. Uh, I don't have anything, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to the cardiac arrest or anything, but. Uh, you know, I've had a fellow officer here who had a cardiac arrest on his way to work one day that I, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. him super well, but I did know him and it happened. So when I heard about Brandon's, you know, his, his cause is not for profit, uh, Griffith Blue Heart, it was huge. And then he invited me to come along mm-hmm. to a training and Ray and I were there and he tells me this story about resuscitation and all I'll say <laughs> is CPR and the, the, uh, the, the, um, person that Ray was saving as a very junior officer uh, had ate beans and rice the night before. And if you're anything familiar with resuscitation, you know what happens (laughs) with last night's dinner when you're doing resuscitation on someone. And it's not so nice, but yeah, that's the beans and story, a little highlight on that. Well, Ray, okay. I want to say thanks, thanks, thanks for being here. Uh, we'll talk about the beans and rice in the in the future. And if anybody wants to, you know, reach out to Ray, you can probably find him through LinkedIn. Is probably the best one, um, mm-hmm. Ray uh, Neho uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, but otherwise, again, Ray, thanks for all your service. Thanks for everything that you've done. Thanks for being here today, taking the time mm-hmm. uh, out of your day to tell your experiences. And for those that are listening, remember. Ray's talked about so many different things, whether you're command, whether you're new, you know, new to the job, whether you're aspiring to join the job. Look at some of the things that Ray's talked about after his 35 plus year career in law enforcement and military and, you know, going from rock bottom to, to, to all the way to the top and just implement one of those things in today. Just start doing it. Start taking that 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 step every day. Just put it at the forefront of your brain. Focus on it each day. Write it down on a whiteboard. Write it down on your mirror. Something, whatever it was that you picked mm-hmm. up, just write it down so it's there all the time. So you focus on it for the next ninety days, and it will become a habit. It takes twenty one days to start a habit. It takes ninety days to lock one in. Even longer to you know make it so that it is everything. But ninety days will get it in there so it's it's, it's running. Uh, can I, with can that, I offer one? One thing to do. Yeah, go right. Go. Yeah. I've said things to commanders and such, but I'll tell you officers out there, you may be struggling with it. When you come across an issue where like as as we're hearing today that could be, you know, life-changing, life-threatening, or life debilitating, and you think you're not worth it out there, you know, that you're not making a difference and it's gone sideways. Keep this in mind. I had to learn it the hard way. But I learned in the in the bigger scheme of things, after it was all said and done, God don't make no junk. So don't sell yourself short. I love that's that, right? Thanks for that. He's got these finished wrap up, wrap up <laughs> things. So on that, we're going to leave it. We're going to leave it on that. Again, thank you, Ray. Remember, my motto is train hard, test easy, because we're always being tested, especially as law enforcement. But as humans, we always are tested. So train hard, test easy. 
Stay safe out there. We love you all.